Let's take a little time and talk now about the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Favor. Take a minute, turn the radio up. Take a seat in the pastor's office. favorite listeners is pastor jonathan mason and i want to welcome you back into the pastor's office on this second sunday in february Uh, as you know we celebrate black history month in the month of february now i gotta be honest with you and i'm just going to talk straight Uh, i celebrate my black history my legacy 365 days a year uh, uh seven days a week 24 hours a day uh and then twice on sundays i'm very proud of the legacy that i come from and one of the things that uh, we're doing here on Philly's favor each of our personalities throughout the week is doing a black history moment but here at our church northeast baptist church uh, we have our young people every sunday uh, making a presentation uh, about a trailblazer this morning uh, we heard about rosa parks and harriet tubman Uh, i'm actually excited about fourth sunday uh, because my two sons jonathan and jackson uh, are going to be doing their presentation and they're already practicing it's something about being the son of the pastor i guess you got to start practicing early but but When our team put that together for the church, I thought it would be great for us to do that right here on the show every week in February. Uh, And so today, I want to talk about one of my athletic heroes. Uh, I'm a little older than him. I actually went to Abington High School. I was a galloping ghost. Uh, I was on the football team, the track team, and the wrestling team. Uh, I remember uh, wrestling at the Lower Marion tournament on several occasions, uh, and in my senior year, I actually won that tournament. I think I may have won in the junior and senior year. You know how it is when you get older, uh, you start exaggerating, and then then the exaggerations become truth years later. So so I, I won in the junior and senior year. But nonetheless, um, I graduated in 1990 from Abington, uh, and a few years later, a couple years later, uh, a young man came into Lower Marion High School and absolutely became a legend. He still holds the scoring record at Lower Marion High School. It'll probably never be broken. Uh, He took them to a state championship. He was one of just a few that were drafted to the NBA right out of high school. As a matter of fact, I believe it was Kevin Garnett who... Uh, was the last one to be drafted out of high school before him. You already know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant was a trailblazer. Kobe Bryant is one of those icons who has come to be known in many respects by just one name, 
you know those icons, Ali, Frazier. Uh, Kobe is an everlasting icon. Let me give you some stats. I want you to, I want you to really understand this. NBA champion, 2000. 2001, 2002, 2009, and 2010. He was the finals MVP in 2009 and 2010. He was the MVP of the league in 2008. 18-time All-Star. And when I was putting this month of shows together, I realized that it's been two years as of January the 26th that Kobe passed on from labor to reward. You remember, it was January 26, 2020. He, his daughter, and seven others uh, were in a helicopter on their way to a basketball game. And unfortunately, that helicopter crashed. Well, there's a new book out. It's written by a familiar name here in Philadelphia. Uh, He's with the Philadelphia Inquirer, one of their great writers. He's written a book called The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. And we want to bring him into the pastor's office today to do this profile on a trailblazer, an American legend, not just a black legend, an American legend, Kobe Bryant. Mike Sielski, welcome into the pastor's office, sir. Pastor Mason, it is terrific to be with you. I grew up just outside Abington, so you and I probably ran in some of the same haunts. Wow, <laughs> when where, we were where, where did you grow up, Mike? Uh, I went to Upper Dublin High School, but I grew up right off of uh, Jenkintown Road and Limekiln Pike, literally right on the border between Abington and Upper Dublin. Oh uh, man, you know, you know about the Willow Grove Mall. You know about uh-huh, your, that was you, where that was my hangout, sir. Yeah, you, you, you you remember that arcade we all used to hang out at every every Thursday and Friday night? Hot 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 Dogs Inc. in the food court had the greatest hot dogs ever. And, and listen, I, and listen, I'd be I'd be remiss if I didn't even if I didn't mention Lee's Hoagie. You must know Lee's Hoagies oh, as well. Absolutely. Oh, you're taking me back, sir. You're taking me back. <laughs> well, listen, it's good to have you in the pastor's office. Uh, and it's good to talk to uh, a fellow, what I call Montgomery Countyite. So, so again, welcome into the pastor's office. Uh, you wrote this book. I've had a chance to read a good portion of it uh, prior to you coming in today. And, and, and first of all, talk to me about what inspired you to write the book. Sure. Well, after Kobe passed uh, in January of 2020, as you said, um, I ended up writing I'd say about half a dozen to a dozen columns about him in the aftermath of his death. I mean, obviously he had ties to the area. He meant a lot to a lot of people uh, in Lower Marion, in the Lower Marion community, in the Philadelphia basketball community. And about a month or two after he had died, I thought to myself, you know, I know his story of the, the story of his young life really, really well. You know, growing up in suburban Philadelphia, I was an undergrad at LaSalle University when Kobe's dad, Joe Bryant, was the assistant basketball coach there. I got to meet Joe when I was a student. And I thought, you know, this is a, the story. This is a story that people around here know very well, but that I'm not sure people around the country or even around the world know well. The, the first 17 years of Kobe's life, what it was like for him to go to school at Lower Marion, to play basketball there, to have lived in Italy, and then to come back to the community when he was 13 years old. Um, and I thought if I told that story the right way, that somebody would be able to read a book about Kobe, just that portion of his life, and understand him fully as a man, as a figure in our culture, 
uh, all that sort of stuff. So um, I figured, why not? And I, I gave it a shot. So my, here's the interesting thing. I, obviously, I knew about his Lower Marion background. When I was in college, you know, guys from the basketball team were always talking about this guy over at Lower Marion that nobody could hang with. Uh, they talked about the fact that he went one-on-one with NBA stars in the offseason uh, while he was in high school. But what I did not know is that he spent time overseas before he came back. Tell us a little bit about his experience over there. Sure. Well, I mean, as you know, Joe Bryant was a basketball superstar in Philadelphia at Bartram High School, at LaSalle College in the 70s. Then he played eight years in the NBA, and he was it didn't go quite the way he would have wanted. I mean, Joe was an incredibly talented player, but he felt like he never really got a fair shot in the league to show what he could do. So he ended up uh, taking him himself and his family abroad to Italy and playing professionally over there for eight years. And so Kobe lived over there. The Bryant family didn't see a whole lot of people who look like them. They see a lot of black faces around, but Kobe got a firsthand experience in observing and playing basketball in Italy. And I think it informed him kind of culturally. He became more open to people of different backgrounds uh, once he came back to the States for good. And I think it, it informed his basketball game as well. He he developed a real um, devotion to the sports fundamentals. He got an up-close look at how these pro players in Italy played, how they moved their feet on the court, how they shot the ball. And it kind of enhanced what was already inside him, this drive to become a great basketball player. He, between his father and those players in Italy, he kind of had the baseline he needed to be great. So he comes back to Montgomery County or, or to Lower Marion in, in tw- and at the age of 13. Uh, he's already a, a budding star. Uh, uh, talk to us about his experience uh, at Lower Marion now. And, and, and let's look at it from this perspective. I went to Abington. Abington, when I was there, was 12% black. You had to look down the halls pretty far to see somebody that looked like you. Uh, Lower Marion had some of the same demographics. Uh, how did he? How was he able to navigate as a student-athlete, as a student superstar in, in that Lower Marion environment? Well, it sounds like his experience might have been a little similar to yours. Lower Marion was about 10 or 12% black at the time. Uh, and basketball was his way into the greater community, right? He he comes back, and there's the rumor mill is churning. Ooh, there's a former Sixer who's moved back to the area, and his son's in eighth and ninth grade, and, and he's really good at basketball. Um, now, when he comes back and starts as a freshman at Lower Marion, he has two older sisters who are also at the school with him. And when they pass each other in the hallways, they speak Italian to each other because that is the language that they are accustomed to talking. Um, it's kind of their own code in a way um, so that nobody understands what they're saying as they pass each other in the hallways. And Kobe was a searcher. And so one of the things he did once he came back was to try to figure out, okay, where do I fit in in this community? I haven't had the upbringing that any of these white kids have had in Lower Marion. And I haven't had the upbringing that most of these black kids have had either. So he joined the Student Voice Organization, for instance, which was the Black Student Union uh, at Lower Marion. He made a lot of friends there. And uh, he's, he's trying to get a sense of what, what his identity was at that time. Um, and what was interesting about him, Pastor, was that he could move in and out of different social circles and crowds. He could hang with the jocks, with the other basketball players. He could hang out with the kids in his 10th grade honors English class. He could hang out with the kids who liked rap music and they'd go to, you know, a studio on the weekend and, and record stuff. So, you know, I think basketball was his way in, but by the time he graduates, you know, he can move in pretty much any crowd in that community. And he's the most popular and in some ways important figure in the entire high school. 
And, and, and you know what? One of the things, two things that, that as I was reading your book that really stuck out to me, one, uh, you already mentioned it, he started as a freshman, which Anybody who's been a high school athlete knows that never happens. Uh, uh, typically, <laughs> typically, you you, you got to wait until at least your junior year uh, before you get out there. If you're good, you can get it in your sophomore year. Uh, so he started as a freshman, but also, even as a great athlete, he did not lose sight of academics. He got a 1080 on his SAT. I mean, talk yep. to us a little bit yep. about how he stayed connected there. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because I get asked a lot, you know, was Kobe, it's the nature nurture question, right? Did he have this drive inside him or was there something about his environment and his upbringing that brought it out of him? And it was both. It was 50-50. And that academic side of him came from his mother, Pam. You know, she was the head of the household, very strong woman, uh, you know, raised devoutly Catholic. And when it came to her kids' education and their behavior, um, she was a taskmaster. You know, Kobe couldn't play basketball after he got home from school until he had finished his homework. And, you know, he was a naturally gifted, bright kid. Um, so, for instance, when he takes high, uh, honors English his sophomore year, the entire unit for the year is about the hero's journey. He's reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, and he's watching Star Wars in class with his teacher, Jeannie Mastriano, to, to learn about Luke Skywalker's journey to being a hero. And, He's, he's totally taken with that, and he sees himself on that journey. You know, he's starting, as you said, as a freshman, which is very, very rare, and he comes in thinking, I'm the best player on this team. And, in fact, some of his teammates, you know, kind of resented him because he shot the ball so much. that The Lower Marion basketball team actually went 4-20 and 20 his freshman year, which ought to be impossible. Right. When you think about it, if you have Kobe Bryant on your team, how do you only win four games out of 24? But he needed. He had some growing up to do, and his natural intelligence, and and the circumstances of his environment and his family allowed him to do that growing up. Wow, what a story! So, so here's my here's my other question that that I want to 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 really explore. Kobe was always known for being an intense player. Uh, uh, some would some would even say every now and then he could get a little dirty uh, out on the court. Uh, how was that developed? How was that intensity developed during his high school career? Well, it, it shows up all the time, and it shows up in ways that um, kind of affect his own friends and teammates. Um, by the time he's a senior, he is so competitive that he doesn't want to lose a drill even in practice. There's an anecdote that I uncovered um, where the team was doing a rebounding drill. You know, coach would shoot the ball and miss it, and two players had to, had to battle for the rebound. And Kobe was going against his teammate Dan Pangrazio, who was probably the second-best player on the team, certainly the best outside shooter on the team. And the two of them are chasing after a ball, heading towards a wall into the gymnasium. And Kobe, it looks like Dan's going to get the ball first, and Kobe shoves him in the back. And Dan hits the wall, and his arm hits kind of a stud in the wall, and it gashes Dan's arm. Kobe gets the ball, raises it over his head, you know, in triumph because he's won the drill. But poor Dan Pangrazio has to go to the hospital and get three or four stitches wow. in the middle of practice. Wow. And that kind of thing, ha- not, not to that degree, but that level of competitiveness was in him from the earliest of ages. Um, you know, you're talking about a three-year-old kid who used to watch his dad's NBA games on TV and 
wipe his brow with a towel like he saw the NBA players doing and say to his mother, hey, mom, I'm sweating just like dad. I mean, this was this was a kid who knew in his bones that he wanted to be a great basketball player and was willing to do whatever he had to do to reach that goal. So you shared you shared that freshman season. It was only four wins uh, that freshman season, and and you see that with a lot of star athletes. The team ends up having to be molded around their gifts and their talents uh, as they develop and mature. Take us through sophomore, junior, and senior on their way to a state championship. Tell us how they came together. Sure. Well. What's interesting about that is you kind of have to go back to his eighth grade year. He comes in, he goes to middle school at Ballakinwood Middle School, and the basketball coach there is a guy named Dr. George Smith, who's been there forever, and he runs a very disciplined kind of system. The team has to pass the ball three times before they shoot it, and Kobe doesn't like this at all. So his coach at Lower Marion, Greg Downer, understands how talented Kobe is. And he, he mentions to somebody Kobe's sophomore year. I wonder if anybody understands that we have the next Michael Jordan in our gym. And so he builds the team around Kobe, right? He kind of, he's, he, he doesn't need anybody else to shoot the ball all that much. Um, he needs good defensive players, unselfish players, guys who understand how great Kobe is, and they can kind of ride him through the next couple of years, and the team gets better and better. And then finally, Kobe's senior year, Downer kind of builds the entire coaching staff around trying to maximize Kobe's talent. He's got a, a coach who's a defensive coordinator. He's got an assistant coach who's kind of like the sports psychologist. He's going to be the emotional shoulder to cry on for all the players. He's got a guy who's kind of the media relations guy. He's going to handle all of Kobe's interviews. And then finally, he, he brings on a guy named Jimmy Kaiserman, another Abington grad, just like you, wow. who played Division One ball at Ryder in Miami and who played professionally overseas. And he's the guy who's going to guard Kobe every day at practice because Kaiserman could dunk, he was physical, he was tough, and he could test and push Kobe at practice in a way that none of Kobe's teammates could. You know, you kind of had to make sure that he was staying sharp. And by doing that, Downer creates this environment that allows Laura Marion in Kobe's senior year to win the district championship and to win the state championship. First time in 53 years that the school had won a state title. So now here we have a state champion, and he's being recruited by colleges like Duke and Michigan. I mean, he's being recruited by the best colleges out there. Uh, and you, as you said earlier, his mother was a taskmaster. She was big on education. How does the decision come about that he goes right into the draft and bypasses college? Well, the key moment is the summer of 1995, um, because that's the summer that John Lucas, who was the Sixers head coach at the time, and whose daughter, Tarvia, was a classmate of Kobe's at Lower Marion, invites Kobe to scrimmage and play pickup with the Sixers and other NBA players and a whole bunch of high-level Division I players at St. Joseph's University throughout the summer. This was kind of a common thing back then. A bunch of guys would get together, play at the field house, play all day. That was how NBA players and college players stayed in shape. So Kobe is 16, 17 years old, playing pickup against Jerry Stackhouse, who had been the Sixers' number one pick the, year, the previous year, and Rick Mahorn and Sean Bradley and Vernon Maxwell and a whole bunch of other guys. And he is holding his own and then some. And that convinces him, you know what, 
I don't have to go to Duke. I don't want to go to LaSalle, you know, and maybe play for my dad at 20th and Aldi. I'm not going to Michigan or Arizona or North Carolina. I don't have to. I can make the jump. I can go straight from Lower Marion to the NBA. And as you said earlier, at the time, this was kind of a radical way of thinking. You know, Kevin Garnett had gone into the NBA draft as a high school kid the year before, but Kevin Garnett was seven feet tall. He looked like a man when he was 18. Kobe was six foot six and a guard and kind of wispy. And because he was so smart, people looked at him and said, why does he have to do this? What makes him think he can do this? He could go to Duke if he wanted to. Why wouldn't he want to go to Duke? And there was a lot of confusion and kind of people were perplexed about why he was doing it. And they doubted that he could do it just because he wasn't built up that way. And then he spent the next 20 years proving them all wrong. 18 all-star seasons, five NBA championships, MVP of the league. Yes, sir. He proved them all wrong and has left a legacy that will stand the test of time. Mike Selsky, I enjoyed your book. I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, it has been fascinating. And I want to encourage our Phillies' favorite listeners to go to Amazon and order your book. You know what? You can sell it better than us. T- tell the listeners how to go and get your book. I want them to get a copy. Oh, I appreciate that, Pastor. Um, the, the easiest thing to do is either go straight to Amazon or go to, uh, I have a website for the book, www.theriseofkobebook.com. And that'll, if you don't want to get it from Amazon, you can, it'll take you to a million other places where you can order the book. Uh, but I so appreciate this, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. The Rise, Kobe Bryant and the Pursuit of Immortality. Author Mike Sielski, thank you for coming into the pastor's office, and we look forward to talking to you again real, real soon. Anytime, sir. Thank you. Philly's favorite listeners, don't you dare leave your radio dial or leave the app. We'll be right back after these commercial messages. Hey, Philly's favorite listeners, welcome back to the pastor's office. And I want to thank again author Mike Sielski for coming in to the pastor's office and talking to us about his new book uh, on Kobe Bryant. Uh, I want to encourage you, go get the book. Learn about the rise of this great American icon, Kobe Bryant, uh, who comes right from this area. But listen, let me tell you a little story. You know I like telling you stories. Let me tell you. Uh, My boys have been brought up, I guess you would say in some ways, uh, a bit, they're a little sheltered. Um, They have had the opportunity to go to private schools, and they've had the opportunity to have some experiences that, you know, uh, we were blessed to provide them with. One thing that I recognized a couple years ago Uh, is that I felt that they needed to be more closely connected with their heritage, that they needed to have a greater understanding of where they came from, whose shoulders they stand on. And so I put together a black history tour for them. Uh, We went to Atlanta. We went to Selma, Birmingham, Montgomery. Uh, We were gone for about seven days. And after we got done visiting Ebenezer and Bethel Baptist and the Edmund Pettus Bridge and and, and going to the cemetery where several of the young ladies uh, from 16th Street were buried, after going to 16th Street and talking to their pastor, uh, after doing all of that and more, 
they had a better perspective, real-life perspective, on what those black and white videos that we see on TV every now and then were all about. They had a, they had a better perspective on where they came from, who they came from, and why they should forever be grateful for those that sacrifice that they may be able to have the blessings they have right now. This is Black History Month, and one of the things that I wanted to do is share with you that we have a treasure right here in Philadelphia. We should be taking our families there, our children there, to learn about African American history. And that treasure is the African American Museum right here in Philadelphia. What better time to become acquainted with it? What better time to make an appointment to go there and see what this treasure has to offer? And so what I wanted to do today is welcome into the pastor's office the vice president of programming for the African American Museum right here in Philadelphia, uh, Mr. Ivan Henderson. Mr. Henderson, why don't you come on in the pastor's office, have a seat, and let's have a conversation. Thank you, Pastor Mason. Thank you so much for having me. Listen, uh, first of all, uh, for those of our listeners here on Philly's Favor who are not aware of the museum, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the background of the museum, how it came to be? Uh, just give us just give us some context. Uh, well, we were founded in 1976 and actually opened our doors on uh, Juneteenth. Um, and, and this was around the nation's bicentennial celebration. Uh, so a number of institutions were founded right around then. Of course, the, the major national celebration that will be watched uh, will be in Philadelphia. And so a number of institutions uh, were founded around that. But we're, we're coming on the heels of, of course, the civil rights movement and the black arts movement. Um, and so in many ways, uh, there was just a critical mass of interest um, and agency um, and black thought that would lead to the establishment of museums like ours. We're the oldest municipally funded um, and continuously operated uh, African-American museum in, in the country and therefore in the world. Um, uh, the, the oldest of our kind at 46 years old this year. Um, so, so we're really proud uh, of our heritage. Um, and we think that we also mark, you know, a specific um, era on the long continuum of uh, black history here in the region. Wow, that's interesting. The oldest, not only in the country, but in the world, 46 years uh, of history. Tell me, how was how were the exhibits built? I'm sure over time, things were donated. How did you secure, uh, or how did the museum secure the artifacts that would make up the museum? Well, of course, there were uh, some foundational um, donations uh, from some very prominent artists and, and collectors. Um, and a lot of leadership just at the foundational level. Over the years, we've sustained our collection and, and grown it through continued building relationships with the donating community and, and occasionally acquisitions. Um, and these days, we're, of course, you know, putting on exhibitions that are both drawn from our permanent collection, which is tell so much of the region's story and therefore the nation's story because it's Philadelphia. Uh, but beyond that, we also, you know, search far and wide uh, for exhibitions and objects that, that help us explain and understand and learn about uh, African-American and African diasporic lives. I often talk about Black with a capital B. Um, and so we're just trying to be in that worldwide conversation 
uh, that's exploded over the past several years and decades. Now, I know there are a few exhibitions that we're going to talk about during the interview today, but before yeah. we get there, you mentioned the donating community. Why don't you talk to our listeners a little bit about how the museum is funded? The museum is funded both municipally, uh, we're continuously operated and municipally funded. Uh, therefore, the city of Philadelphia is behind the museum uh, in a major way, but also through uh, state and other funds and, of course, corporate and foundation giving. Um, so in many ways, uh, like so many museums are operated, but I would say with perhaps a larger proportion of municipal funds in- infused uh, because of the nature of our origin and our, our relationship with the city. But beyond that, you know, it goes beyond uh, money, right? We have a tremendous dynamic network of supporters, uh, both, you know, thinking partners and like-minded folks who support in-kind, uh, through in-kind donations um, and through other sorts of resources, and a small army of uh, docents and other volunteers who give so much of their time, as well as a board of directors who, who really see to the long-term well-being of the institution. Uh, so in, in all of those ways, Uh, folks support the institution. Understood. So you have three great exhibitions that uh, will be uh, showing until March the 6th. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about them? Well, well, the first is our core exhibition, uh, Audacious Freedom, which will, you know, be on display um, ad infinitum. It should be here uh, for for at least the foreseeable uh, near future. Um, And that gives you a great foundation into 18th and 19th century history here in Philadelphia. Um, It looks at African-American lives from 1776 to 1876. So I say revolution to reconstruction. And it's not, you know, the the few names that that we all know, um, but because we're talking about people of color who were creating and claiming citizenship, uh, we're really highlighting perhaps a few historical narratives we don't know and others that are becoming familiar, uh, like that of Octavius Cato, um, and Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, who, who folks are becoming more aware of uh, each year. But we also have temporary exhibitions. Um, in our auditorium, we have the work of Gilberto Wilson, uh, who's a living contemporary artist, printmaker, who really explores issues around equity, civil rights, and with a special lens on the intersectionality of African di- diasporic narratives and, and immigrant heritage narratives. I mean, so he's looking at coming to the States um, and all of the things that, that we take advantage of here, the advantages we have, as well as the common sort of obstacles that are faced by people of color all over the world. So I encourage folks to check that out. Um, but upstairs, the, the, the special thing that's going on is Richard J. Watson, Portals and Revelations Beyond Realities. Uh, Richard Watson is our artist in residence. He's been involved with AMP for 36 of our 46-year existence. Um, this is a solo exhibition that looks at a, a mere fraction of his work that he's produced over the past couple decades, um, but, but really um, is a chance for us to highlight and focus on a legendary artist um, in this region and beyond, um, an artist and activist who has used his craft since 1968 uh, to, to, to imagine um, and display solutions uh, for the pains uh, that we feel, as well as ways to express the joys. Uh, that we experience as people of color. It's all steeped in history, and it really is uh, explosive uh, with color and dimension. So I, ho- I really encourage folks to come and check it out. Wow. 
Well, I, I absolutely want to bring my sons down to uh, experience the museum, and we're going to definitely come uh, before March the 6th uh, to see those temporary exhibitions. You know, I, I, that leads me to a question. Uh, with, with, with schools, a lot of schools removing, you know, art and, and different types of courses from their curriculum, are schools still running tours to museums like yours? I mean, do they still come in droves to, to really experience this rich history? Absolutely. I mean, we have to step up to the the challenge of engaging and competing. Uh, And so schools do uh, still come to the museum. We offer more virtual experiences than before. We try to maintain close relationships with uh, the school district of Philadelphia, as well as, you know, educators beyond in order to create museum resources that will actually be useful uh, for them in the classroom. And so it's it's a spirit of co-authorship. Um, and partnership that goes into every museum experience. I also have a couple of young young children in school uh, themselves, and so I always think about their classrooms. Their mother is a teacher, and so I always think about her classroom and what you know where the rubber really meets the road in terms of learning. It's about the content, but it's also about the social and emotional side of it, and instilling the the pride uh, in certain folks, or in, instilling the spirit of uh, discovery in others. Um, and so we're we're working on all those things all the time. And uh, Pastor Mason, I want to go back. Your sons, your private school sons, I, I, I'll say I share that in common with them, uh, that, I, that I'm a boarding school uh, kid. And, and I didn't come from a background of privilege, uh, but, you know, got a scholarship to go to a private school years ago. And I still maintain, even if we came at it from different directions, learning this history enriches that experience, that yes, formal sir. education experience, and answers so many questions and actually fills in the cracks and the holes that won't be taught to you, you know, in a, in a Western European-focused uh, classroom. And so, you know, I feel like um, that style of education has resonated with me, but my African-American history um, and learning about myself and my ancestors in an affirming way um, has really, you know, grown me into a man. Uh, with self-love, uh, who can love the people around him. Well, uh, so, you know, I, I think your sons are in a great position. Well, you know, what the interesting part is I asked both of them, I said, you know, so what are your schools doing uh, to commemorate Black History Month? And, you know, um, <laughs> the answer I got back was none, none too pleasing. Let me just be transparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of putting some pictures up on the wall, and, and maybe having a, you know, a couple conversations about the names we already all know. Uh, <laughs> they're, mm-hmm. they're not talking about Baird Rustin. They're not talking about uh, uh, some of the names that we don't know. They talk about the mainstays. Uh, and while we appreciate them, there's so much more texture to black history. Uh, and our schools just aren't going there. So that's why I'm glad there's such a resource like the African American Museum where we can go and we can learn uh, and get that information and get that knowledge. Do me a favor, please. Share with our listeners how they can get more information. Uh, talk about operating hours. I want our listeners to be engaged and get down to the museum. So our website, of course, is the uh, most common way, www.aampmuseum.org. Uh, but, of course, we are on the social media portals, and that, uh, our tag there is just AAMP Museum. Uh, that's fa- Facebook, Twitter, uh, and Instagram. Um, but you can also just give us a call the old-fashioned way, 215 We're open 10 a.m. until 5 p.m. 
Thursday through Sunday throughout this month and, and months beyond this. Uh, there, there's a ton of things going on. Uh, we, we tend to focus on families on Saturday afternoons, especially some of our youngest learners. But any time of the week is a great time to engage with the museum. I have to say that this year we're focusing on wellness, self-care, and general communal uh, well-being. Um, and so we have a couple of programs coming up this month that, that I, I just want to mention uh, uh, really quickly. Sure. Uh, we have on February 17th uh, a great talk with uh, Tracy McHale lewis Giggett. Uh, the, the, the talk is The Power of Black Joy, a reading and conversation. Uh, now, Black Joy is Tracy's new book. Um, if you look it up, you'll see that it's rising up the charts, and it grew from a, uh, an essay uh, that she wrote a couple of years ago for the Washington Post. Uh, but the thing that's special to me in the, the museum for this virtual event, uh, so folks can register and, and, and come and join us online, is that Tracy was one of the heads of education at the African American Museum in Philadelphia. I think she was the museum educator or, or someone along those lines, but she was above me. Uh, when I started at the museum uh, 16 or so years ago. And so it's a homecoming of sorts at a perfect time uh, with a perfect topic. And so I'm really encouraging uh, folks to check that out on February 17th. And then on February 20th, uh, we have a Black History Month concert. And for those who know that we do a, a Martin Luther King Day concert every year, we had to postpone that uh, because, of the, uh, because of things going on in the public health scenario. So we have a virtual event going on uh, Sunday, February 20th, 3.30 in the afternoon. Um, and so, you know, in my family, that will be after church. Uh, but Patty Jackson uh, from iHeartRadio will serve as our host. Um, our folks from Citizens Bank, who from Citizens who supported MLK, will support this, uh, along with Duncan and everyone else. But we'll have dancers, singers, performers, and special guests. Uh, Dance for Life, uh, folks from the Quinn Center of the Performing Arts, We'll have the Celebration Choir singing the Negro National Anthem. Uh, we'll also have performances from the Clef Club, Universal African Drum and Dance Ensemble, and inspirational words uh, from a, a reenactor per performing Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, as well as Reverend Carla Jones-Brown, who I'm sure you know. Uh, so I think this is going to be a wonderful afternoon, a chance for us to indulge in some positive healing practice um, and try to spread some love. Um, and hopefully uh, get people excited about a full year of Black history beyond the month of February. Outstanding. And I promise you uh, that Jonathan and Jackson Mason, along with myself, will visit the museum this month. I'm excited to get there and absolutely see some of these exhibitions. Philly's favorite listeners, please take the information, as I always say, and act on it. Let us go out and support the African American Museum in Philadelphia. Uh, Mr. Ivan Henderson, Vice President of Programming, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for giving us this education. And anytime we can be of assistance to you and the museum to get the message out, we're only but a phone call away, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the support, and we look forward to seeing you all. God bless. About the state that we are living in. Political, spiritual, maybe some life. While you are listening to Phyllis Faber.